So I always been a rebel, like no helmet, riding the Vespa, maybe earlier than I should have. I don't even remember. <laughs> also was my energy. My energy was so pure and I was so excited. There was, there was, there was some freedom in like being just on my own and having left behind all the things that really, to be honest, were connected to my family, right? To my family dynamics. Like I didn't really get into any of that, but it was very toxic. I was like, oh my God, he is so nice. He's such a kind person. He was very talented and, you know, driven. And, and those were very much the things that he helped me see in myself. He was like, how are you so lost? It's so obvious to me what you're good at. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm not good at anything. No one ever tells me that I'm good at anything. What are you talking about? And he's like, you're so creative. Look at you, your sense of fashion. You're, you have snakeskin shoes in February. I'm Fatih Light. And I'm Rick Rupenthal. Welcome to An Honest Look. Where we look at transformation from the inside out. Unplugged. Unscripted. And in the moment. I don't know. Hey. Hello, Hi. everyone. Yes, we are live. Hello. Hi, Fatih. Hi, Rick. How you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm just trying to stay in my lane today. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is pretty cool. No, thanks. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the um, An Honest Look today. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening, wherever you might be. And uh, we have a special guest tonight, don't we? I love it. I love yeah. to be the guest. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it, I know um, you had an opportunity to do the interviewing of me a couple of weeks ago. And now, now the tables are kind of turned around a little bit. The spotlight's on you. The spotlight's on me. Now we got to talk about all my dirty secrets. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. So <clears throat> where would you like to begin? Do you want to... Um, Tell tell us a little bit, or tell me a little bit. I know very. I know a little bit. I know. I know you're from Europe and things like that. But if you want to just, you know, tell me a little bit about growing up and where you're from and. Right. I feel like I feel like you got all the different pieces, but you never had them in chronological order. Well, no, yeah, they were all <laughs> over the place, right? And, and I, I, I have this roadmap on on my wall right now of fatigue, <laughs> but I, but it's. <laughs> So yeah, it's a lot, and it's a lot, right? How are we going to do this in one hour? Let's try, right? Yeah, you betcha. Go for it. Okay, so let's see. I was born in Iran, and that's where my name comes from. My parents, my dad was Iranian. My mom is Italian. Um, so I was born there. I was there the first six, seven years of my life. I even went to first and second grade in Iran, believe oh. it or not. So I actually learned to read and write. I mean, I don't know, can you read and write by second grade? I, I don't remember any of it, but mm. I did go to school there. And those years, those first years of my life were actually a pretty tumultuous time in history for that part of the world. Uh, specifically in Iran, there had just been a change of government, uh, the government that's there today. Mm. And that um, shift happened back then, right, a few years after I was born. So there was a revolution and there was a, like a 
there were a lot of different like civil, you know, revolutions and things going on. And my dad at the time was actually involved with the previous government, of the Shah of Persia. And when he was kicked out of the, you know, I'm going to make this story very short because otherwise we'll sit here and talk about this for a long time. But <laughs> long story short, um, he was kicked out of the country, the government that's there now took over. And whoever was working with the previous government continued to work with the previous government was considered a political um, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so at some point, very long story short, um, we were able to leave the country. And then in the meantime, also the war Iran-Iraq had started. So I actually lived through some of that in, um, in my childhood of being in a city in Tehran where there was a war happening and alarms going off and food was being rationed and we would stand in line and there were certain things we couldn't have. And so I really, I feel like I kind of don't really remember it, but now I'm rationalizing that I probably took in a lot of that fear. Yeah. And eventually, long story short, we were able to leave the country because we had dual citizenship. My mom was Italian and we had Italian citizenship as well. It was not that easy. It took us about a month of going and trying and we were able to finally leave. And so we moved to Italy. In the meantime, my dad stayed behind. A few months later, he was able to leave as well, which was kind of shocking because at the time it wasn't that easy for people to leave, but he was lucky enough to be able to leave because of his family. So he joined us in Italy. And <clears throat> needless to say that to go from that kind of setting and everything that was happening there to Italy was quite the difference, right? It's mm -hmm. kind of like landing in Disneyland. Literally, it was a shock. It was a, it was a true shock. Anyway, so my dad came and lived with us in Italy for a little while. In the meantime, we were adjusting to being in another country. I didn't speak Italian, so I had to learn Italian, adjust into you know, elementary school in third grade. There were a lot of adjustments happening. Mm -hmm. and. At some point, once my dad came to Italy, he just lasted about six months. He decided to go back to Iran. And when he did that, he was captured. Mm. He was captured as a political prisoner. He was tortured. And many things happened in between. He was in prison, moved from prison to prison. We saw him at some point as kids during the summer. And then he was eventually, he was eventually executed hmm. that's really as far as we know right because they didn't really tell you anything no just disappear so all i knew at that time at that age i was about seven years old was that no one could find my dad anymore and probably something really bad had happened to him and the last memories that i had of him were of him being in prison and really looking like he was being tortured and even the setting in which we were in prison, seeing him was not, you know, we're talking about Iran in early 80s. Um, it's quite traumatic. But as a kid, I didn't really see it that way, right? As a kid, that was my reality, that was my story. Yeah, yeah. It's only looking back and, and realizing that there's so many like dark black holes in my memory that probably some really traumatic stuff had happened that I couldn't 
quite process at the time. Well, who, who, could, of, who could? Because right. you're so young, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like even the adults in my life couldn't quiet help, you know, process it themselves, right? So a lot, a lot went unprocessed and a lot went, and, you know, a lot of uh, the surroundings, you know, of my dad's death were mysterious, wasn't very clear what had actually happened to him. And I think that when you lose someone that you really love, you hold on to any hope you have. So I feel like I spent years of my life thinking that it would come back, that it had escaped, that it was somewhere that it was gonna show up again. Mm -hmm. Really truly, I, we didn't get a confirmation of his death until I wanna say maybe 10 years ago. So oh, we're really? talking about, yeah, mid eighties. So many, many years and I, you know, I received a picture of a grave with his name. And then a few years later, it turned out that there was a second grave with his name. So. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> it's like, it sounds like a, a almost a, like a plot of a spy movie or something. It, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, movies come from somewhere. Right? Yeah. Movies come from somewhere. So yeah. <clears throat> that was a little bit of my, the beginning of my life. <laughs> It's quiet, um, you know, I cut through a lot of stuff, but it was such a traumatic moment. There were a lot of things that, you know, I think in, in the first world countries we would consider unacceptable, like unimaginable, but those things do happen. Mm -hmm. It was uncovered more recently with everything that was going on with that woman that was killed. Those things were happening back then too. Yeah. You know? And they were repressed for what, almost 40 years, right? Absolutely, yeah. So just because we don't know about them doesn't mean that they weren't happening. That those of us that live there know that they were happening, right? Um, so that was the first years of my life. And then I always say I was so blessed to have this unique situation where I was also half Italian. And so when we moved to Italy, we, you know, we had our grandparents there. My mom is an only child, so we didn't have that much family. And that was a big change, too, because... All of my family was from my dad's side. He had four brothers. He has four brothers. And, but then all our family got scattered around the world because of the whole political situation right. mm. and the war and everything that was happening back then. So we kind of got scattered. I started my life with having a lot of family around and then ended up in Italy, it was just us. But, you know, that's not to say that you can't create a life from there or have people that are meaningful in your life, you know, regardless. Yeah. And that's very much what happened. I went on to have a pretty, like, Italian childhood, riding my Vespa to school. I had my friends, you know, like, hang out in the piazza and, you know, do all the things that normal kids would do. So normal kids in Italy drive Vespas. Is this what you're saying? Oh yeah, without a helmet and crash <laughs> their Vespas into cars. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I think about myself in those years, like middle school, high school, and I have a son that's about to go into middle school, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh wow, yeah. I remember that, right? As a parent, now I'm like, oh wow, now I know why my mom worried so much, you know. Yeah. But I I was very much a rebel, right? And I and, and like looking back, I feel like a lot of that came from my dad too. My dad was fighting for for his country. My dad was fighting for something he really believed in, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I always been a rebel, like no helmet, riding the Vespa, maybe earlier than I should have. I don't even remember. <laughs> but yeah, I lived this stereotypical Italian lifestyle. And it was, you know, it was, it was a pretty good life. I think we had a pretty decent life. Uh, hi, Don. And we do do it in style. And you know what, talking about style, and that, that's a little bit where the seeds were planted for me. I remember when I first like got integrated in the, you know, in school in Italy, and like, my mom had me dressed like an Iranian girl. Oh, really? <laughs> that became a thing for me. I, it was, it really wasn't like, it was like a doll. I had all these dresses. Because, you know, we had to cover up. Like when I was, you know, in, in the sixth grade, I was five years old in school, I had to cover up my hair and I had, you know, to cover up. Like yeah. I had like brown shirt and pants, like everything was dark. Yeah. So what you wore underneath, like people just get crazy underneath, right? So when they're indoors, they have like nicer outfits. So my mom had all these dresses and I remember like it became a thing because I would, be made fun of because it wasn't stylish. It wasn't what was in, right? And and I started like kind of resenting her, wanting to kind of dress more like a European girl, like an Italian yeah, girl. Yeah, like your environment. Exactly, like yeah. my environment. And my mom, you know, fought me a little bit. I mean, we can get into my mom in a minute. We can also get into my dad as well, because now I'm just giving you the history, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and then, um, we happened to live in this house where there was another family we were renting from them and they had a girl that was about a year older than me and her, her and I became best friends. She's still, I consider her like a sister. She's still oh, there in that same great. house. Really, I see her every summer when I go back. Her name is Julie. She really is like a sister to me. And I always say if it wasn't for her and her family, I don't know where I would be. Mm. because for me that was the very the very first time that I had an opportunity in my life to have that contrast right of seeing what my life was like with you know the tragedy that had happened to our family with my dad being killed the way he was killed and also you know growing up was rough you know going up was rough um, you know, we could, I could really sit here and point fingers on my mom. My mom didn't do this. My mom didn't do that. We're not going to go there right now. I don't think we'll have time, but like <laughs> I, I had, you know, I had disagreements with my mom. I had, you know, I think my mom was, you know, given some pretty tough cards, you know, dealt some pretty tough cards and like was left with three children, young children. I was the oldest one. My little brother was three and then five and then I was seven. Mm. And she just had to figure it out. So it wasn't, you know, and I think that information wasn't as available as it is today. And I know today that she did the best that she could. At the time, that's not the way I saw it. At the no. time. That's no, not how I experienced it at the time. Yeah. It felt really difficult. Also, the way that my family grieved felt really difficult because my mom was very angry, right? She was very angry that my dad chose to go back the once he was safe and he was already, you know, with us. He made that yeah. choice. He chose them over us. So, listen, I've done a lot of work on this, obviously. <laughs> like, yeah, but... As a seven, eight-year-old, it was really difficult for me to grieve my dad and, and also witness 
how my mom was grieving and the grief became very uh, lonely. I think we each just grieved in our own and learned to not talk about it, learn to just be with it, but like not share it. And in my mind, I just really created an alternate reality of what had happened so that I didn't have to really deal with the, the um, what it meant mm. for a person to die. Because at that age, I didn't really even have like a spiritually, I didn't have like a ground to land on. I didn't know what to, to think. I didn't know what, what would happen to people when they died. And, and I think that that kind of led me a little bit later on in my life to come to the conclusion that there was nothing after life. Because my dad just disappeared. So <clears throat> as far as I was concerned, there's nothing after this life. And we're just here. We live this life and then we disappear. So I was, I was an atheist for a really long time. And yeah. And then so after that, I went on. I, you know, I finished all my studies there. I went to high school there. But along the way, I suffered. I suffered a lot. I had because of, I think, the lack of processing of this really terrible loss that I had of, a, of my dad. I suffered from depression. I coped in brilliant ways. I had an eating disorder at some point. I was hospitalized multiple times. For the eating disorder or? Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I tried to commit suicide a few times. And this is all, um, I would say, 17, 18, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. I was just completely lost. I was completely lost. I didn't really have, I felt really disconnected from life. I didn't feel connected to anything. I didn't feel a drive towards anything. I didn't really feel excited about anything. I did things because that was the right thing to do. I went into political science because that was the right thing to do. Um, I, in high school, I studied um, like math and science, which was, the right thing to do, right? It was all about how it was going to be perceived. I had actually, um, I did want to pursue studies in um, art and culture, but my mom didn't let me because that wasn't, you know, as glamorous. And so I ended up really, I was terrible. School was not a place where I shined or I did well. I was always the kid that, oh, is that you for tea? back there, that's you. Let's move you here in the front, you know? I was, I felt like blamed a lot. I was singled out a lot, but I was always the kid that had her hand raised. Whether it was in defiance or because I was just genuinely curious, I had a lot of questions. That seemed to annoy my teachers, my <laughs> Italian enlightened, you know, yeah. very culturally, you know, knowledgeable. Italian teachers that I had. And that's, that's also like something that culturally I learned. It actually did not serve me. It was not healthy. It was quite toxic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we could really get into a whole conversation about culture and like tradition and how those things are like put on a pedestal and sometimes they do become toxic, right? In this case, I think they were, right? There's a lot of labeling. There was a lot of pointing fingers. There was a lot of, you'll never be an A student. There was a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. And 
nonetheless, but she always had her hand raised. She always had questions. And oftentimes my teachers would ignore me. <laughs> no more questions, too many questions, right? Yet sometimes there were, I was being defiant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you, when you think about it though, it, like, like the cultural shift and, and, and the isolation that you, you experienced and then how that isolation just kept creeping into into your school you know and and even you know the words like rebel came up defiant came up yeah. in the yeah. conversation right loss came up and and then here you are you know 17 18 and now you're fully demonstrating yet yeah I'm not gonna wear a helmet. I'm gonna do all the dangerous things for me. I'm gonna try anything and everything. And then if you find out about it, I'm gonna still do it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was a huge rebel. And you know, like um, at that point of my life, you know, around 18, when the eating disorder got really bad and I was literally hospitalized, I was uh, finally, my uh, family uh, took some steps because the doctors gave him no choice. I started therapy with a psychoanalyst. And actually, I will reach out to him one of these days because that relationship changed my life. Um, at first, it was a little bit interesting because I felt like I'm just laying there and talking. The guy is, I don't even see him. Okay. <laughs> he never says anything. So I'll be like, I don't know about this. Yeah. But guess what? When someone just stays there and listens to you for months and months and months, when they do speak, <laughs> oh. It really resonates. It really stays with you. And he did. He, he did speak because one of the things that was happening was that I would go see him. I would go see all the specialists and I would get better. Yeah. And then I would be thrown back into my environment mm. and I would, get, I would relapse. Right. Yep. And so I didn't know any of this at the time, but they all understood that the problem was the environment. Right. So initially I moved out. Um, my, my, you know, my mom's house, I wanted to live with roommates. That was fine, but I still didn't, didn't feel good, right? Because it was stuff that I needed to work on. So anyway, long story short, I continued to see this psychoanalyst. And at some point, my cousin, um, one of my um, dad's brother's daughter, who lived in D.C., came to visit me in Bologna, which is where I was raised in Italy. And she made a proposal. She was like, hey, why don't you come to DC for a year? Because right around that time, I was studying political science. The European Union happened. Okay. And I had studied English for like, I don't know, like eight years in school and I knew zero. Like I couldn't <laughs> speak, right? So I was like, you know, it would, if things don't go well with, you know, my studies, I can, if I learn English, maybe I can get a job somewhere else. You know, I can do something with it. So I was considering doing this. It was a little scary because I would have had to go somewhere else for a year, like away from my family. I was like, and I remember like my therapist being like, that may not be a bad idea for you. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, so, the, so you were supported in that way. Yeah. The first time you ever said anything. Oh. Like, I, you know. Why don't we, why don't you think about this? Mm -hmm. This may not be a bad opportunity for you. 
or, you know, it's been so many years, but something yeah. down the line yeah. of that. And you know what? He stayed with me. I was like, wow, this, he is like speaking. This man, this man can talk, you know, like he's speaking and he's encouraging me in this direction. That might be fun because I was, I was so lost. I hated everything that I was studying. It was such an effort talking about like pushing, you know, pushing and like feeling like you're not moving an inch. You know, I, was, I think I took like an exam in economics and another one in like um, public rights, like a law exam. And like, it was, I couldn't do it. I just, it was really, really difficult. So I was like, I'll take a break from this. <laughs> I'll take a break from this. And that's what led me to come to the United States, which today is literally 50% of my life, a little bit more. Wow. Yeah. So he, you know, he guided me in this direction. And I feel like I left behind, I left behind my family, but I also left behind my inherited family my friends um, that I made along the way. And Italians are so like loyal. I still go back and they still celebrate me. When I go back, I'm like, I've that's been cool. gone for 23 years and they still celebrate me. That's, that's the kind of friendships that I have back home. Yeah. And so that was really difficult, right? It was really difficult in the first year to come here and then come here and now I don't speak the language. I don't know what anyone's saying. I can't say anything. It was really, really difficult. So there was, I went through a lot of that hard adjustment in the first, you know, few months. I can remember like going home, oh my God, like my head is gonna explode. Like it's so hard to communicate. Like the basic, my basic needs, like took such an effort, you know, to express what I needed, what I was doing. But you know what, being immersed in the culture like that, we did out of survival, that's where survival comes in, right? And it really serves us. I learned really quickly, right? And also, you know, like I had gone through that. When I moved from Iran, I spoke Farsi. I didn't really speak Italian. My mom obviously spoke fluent Italian and I probably had heard it a lot, but she never spoke to us. I don't know that she was allowed to mm. actually, but I could be projecting. Anyway, and so when I came to the U.S. was, again, I'm starting all over. But, you know, once your mind is trained to speak more than one language, it, it is easier for you to pick up. Mm. Other right. So right. Eventually, I started speaking um, English. Then, then we go into many adventures. I don't know where you want me to go into, but many, many, many adventures. I was at the time, it was... I think 22 or 23 and like I brought my Italian spirit to the United States and I very now, much did you, did you bring your Italian spirit or the Italian rebel spirit my the Italian Iranian rebel spirit, spirit. okay but there was a lot of um I was very naive too because one thing that you know I experienced growing up in Italy was super safe super safe everybody was my friend right everybody was kind and nice not everybody's kind and nice in italy but culturally culturally yeah but i came from right like you talk to everyone you're like you're italians are givers right so i just i was walking the streets of washington dc like everybody was my friend and making friends with everyone 
initially I was with my very protective cousin. I love you, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> was the, you know, like, I really love her. But at the time we bumped a little bit against each other. And, you know, I ended up like moving away from DC because that relationship didn't work out. I had many, I have many stories that I could share about all the adventures I had in DC, but I'm not gonna get into it. I did come pretty close to <laughs> dangerous moments, <laughs> very dangerous moments as um, just clueless 22 year old, completely clueless of what, what life is like on this side of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so I packed up my duffel bag, got on a Greyhound bus, and I moved to New York because DC, DC, everything closed at 1.30. That was boring. <laughs> <laughs> so go to the, do they call it the Big Apple? The Big Apple. Go to yeah. the Big Apple. So I went to the Big Apple, see what's up with a duffel bag. I had a place to stay through a friend that I had met. Actually, he was, at the time, he was my boyfriend. I was mm -hmm. dating someone. And so I stayed with him and, you know, and then my big Apple New York experience started and wow, those years were rough and thick and I learned a lot, you know, like I was there, it was me, my duffel bag, my broken English. This was maybe like five months into me being in the United States and um, didn't really speak English that well. So at the time to get a place, you had to like take the, take the, uh, newspaper, find a listing, Craigslist, it still exists in a digital form, but at the time it was like a paper. Yeah. And then you would, you would call, but because my accent was so thick, no one would ever call me back. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I, I had like secured a job at, a, at an Italian restaurant. And so I had the money, but I couldn't get a place because no one would call me back. Now, I'm not even going to get into all the things that I saw, like full circle moment, because I'm looking for a place right now, currently, right, to run to your city many years later. Different experience, different circumstances. But um, yeah, so I was literally walking the streets looking for, you know, the, it would be like stuff posted on poles or telephones. Do you guys remember the, the public phones? Right, yeah. It would be, you know, like, and then you would rip the phone number and call and, or go to the laundromats. The laundromats were the best place to either like freshen up <laughs> or pick a phone number and, and call and see if you can get a place. So that's, that's kind of how my New York adventure started. And, you know, I learned so much. I learned so much from being on my own, uh, finding myself, finding my way. Like, I really, I am one of those stories of, like, coming with nothing. I had no money. Every money, everything, every dime that I had at that point, I made working at a restaurant. Eventually, I got a place. Um, and then I'm really skipping through a lot of stuff because there's a lot to well, say. I, there's a lot. I just, I'm just curious though, because, because you know, I've got young daughters and things like that, and I can't imagine, you know, and I'm sure they, I can't imagine any young woman, you know, coming from a foreign country, basically a backpack on your, you know, of, of that's your worldly possessions, coming into a city like New York, um, and, 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 
like it could have gone so many different ways. Like it, you know what I'm saying? Like it like could have gone so many different ways. Yeah. Well, exactly. And it, and I'm always curious about the choices that one makes that pulls you away from. I'm going to just say the gutter, as opposed to, right? You know, like was there something within you that kept saying? Like you were saying no to something and, and yes to something else. Oh, I was saying yes to dangerous things too. I was saying right. yes to dangerous things too. I mean, let me tell you. Yeah, I made so oh, this guy is so nice to me. Yeah. Turns out the guy was a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I said yes to a lot of things, but you know, now with the eyes of today looking back, either was something or someone protecting me but also it was my energy my energy was so pure and i was so excited there was there was there was some freedom in like being just on my own and having left behind all the things that really to be honest were connected to my family right to my family dynamics like i didn't really get into any of that but it was very toxic right so was it like a reinventing like did you find yourself it was like a blank slate. It was a blank, a blank slate on my own terms. And it was not easy. There were days that I would walk down the streets of New York crying because I didn't know what was going to be my next move, where I was going to live, how I was going to survive. But mm. you know what I did? I, yeah. The right person always came into my life mm. at the right time, gave me shelter. I found a place. And, you know, even the so-called golden tooth drug dealer that some of my friends that know me know the story, like even that guy helped me out to some extent. Right. So <laughs> I, I'm laughing because you said golden tooth drug dealer. Right. Um, and I didn't I don't know if you, I told you this in my past, but I had a silver tooth. <laughs> oh, you did. You did. Yeah. So that was the reason why I'm mentioning that is because this woman that I was, was working with, she was a bartender, was a waitress. It's like, so did you find a place? I'm like, oh, yeah, this really nice guy. I met him in the street. Can you believe it? Like, I put all my bags in his place. And like, you know, she's like, oh. We just met him in the gym. Like, yeah, he's, I went out with him last night. He was shaking hands with a lot of people. He knows everyone. You know, wow. Like, what does he look like? So I started describing him. And when I got to the golden tooth, she was like, okay, we're going to all get in a van. We're going to go get your stuff. We're going to get you out of this guy's place. Unreal. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> And we all did. We all went and like, it was a very good thing. It, I, I literally escaped a really potentially very dangerous situation that night. Yeah. It became very clear when I went to pick up my stuff that that was going to be the case. Yeah. So right people at the right time came and literally saved my butt and I survived. I survived. It became an adventure, but it all, sometimes it felt really lonely. At times, I questioned it, you know. But there was there was something else that I was clearly getting from it, which was this freedom to just be who I wanted to be, and also to not be anyone to anyone. Right? No one right. Really knew me, so there yeah, were no, no perceptions, no judgment, no no boundaries. No Well, you know, I I grew up in a lot of like being labeled. Yeah. You are a six student because it's not ABC. It's like, you know, zero to 10. Yeah. No one gets 10. You're like a five to six student. You need a six to pass. 
that that was my label you know mm. and so coming from that and feeling like i could be anyone that i wanted to be and in a place like new york city right there was there was an energy to it that really like was healing for me it was very healing to be able to just start over on my own terms and then uh, about a year later i walked into i was looking for an, a new job i walked into a restaurant and i saw the scene that i saw next will forever be with me for the rest of my life because i you know even though i didn't recognize it in that moment i know today that it was i met my soulmate that day i met john who then later that he became the reason why i got that job <laughs> <laughs> he later confessed that he was like um, really pushing for me to get that job. I got a job at this restaurant. We, you know, started dating. He became my husband. Um, a little while after, I think maybe two years after we were dating. And he was, he is, he will always be the love of my life. Um, we had so much fun together. We're really young. We had some of those adventures together. We did a lot of drinking, <laughs> very different lifestyle. But he was just a very, um, he was the light in my life. Mm -hmm. he was the first person that came into my life and saw me, like hold, held that mirror in front of me. And he was showing me a different side of myself that it was very, very unfamiliar. And I think that because it was so unfamiliar, it really, you know, at first I rejected it. Oh my God, I was so mean to him when we first met. I'm like, who is this guy? He, what is he wearing? What is he wearing? Was one of my, you know, as a true good old Italian, what is he wearing? I really rejected him. And now I know why. He was too nice. Why is this guy so nice? Mm. Why is he so nice to me? And I really was mean to him. I was, I was toxic, right? I had all my toxic patterns. But something in him, just he just persisted. And eventually I got to know him better. And I was like, oh my God, he is so nice. He's such a kind person. He was very talented and, you know, driven and... And those were very much the things that he helped me see in myself. He was like, how are you so lost? It's so obvious to me what you're good at. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm not good at anything. Mm. No one ever tells me that I'm good at anything. What are you talking about? And he's like, you're so creative. Look at you, your sense of fashion. You're, you have snakeskin shoes in February. You, you almost died a couple of times wearing their shoes and you keep wearing them. That's commitment. That's <laughs> it, a true story. Yeah. You do not want to wear snakeskin Italian shoes in February <laughs> in snowstorms in New York City, but that's how I was rolling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was clueless. I was clueless. I'm like, oh, that's why everyone's wearing these ugly boots, you know? <laughs> it's icy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I met him and we, it was, it was a beautiful relationship. I ended up staying in the United States. So my one year, as you can have gathered, turned into two, three years. And then eventually we were really in love and decided to get married. 
And so I stayed because of him. I stayed in the United States because of him. And we went through quite the rough patch for me to get my immigration documents. Anyone mm -hmm. in those years can probably relate. So for three years, I couldn't see my family because of it. So I went, we went through some stuff together. And as that was easing up, unfortunately, he got diagnosed with cancer. And this really dark moment of my life, tragic, tragic moment, another tragic moment of my life started because when I look back, there were multiple of them, right? Yeah, my dad's tragic death, but mm -hmm. also all of the darkness, the depression, the hospitalizations, the suicide attempts, you know, like all of that stuff was pretty dark too. And here I was, you know, I thought I found happiness, the love of my life, and in this really big thing hit our lives. And it was very difficult to navigate. I was 27 years old at the time. I had, um, I had started Team Fashion Design, Fashion Institute of Technology. I was majoring in fashion design. Difficult to get into, I got in right away. So everything seemed like it was falling into place, but right. the diagnosis literally came a week after I started that. Mm. And yeah, so we went through that together. He ended up um, you know, doing treatment, went into remission, and then recovered for quite some time. During the recovery phase, things were looking up and we felt like, oh, you know, he got so lucky, he was in a very, uh, aggressive cancer and lo and behold within a year of his remission he got diagnosed with colon cancer late stage oh okay no no treatment and yeah and that was the beginning of probably i would say the m most difficult time of my life like where i was actually conscious an adult where i understood what was about to happen and really lived through the fear of what are we gonna do? We have to save your life, looking for different treatments, flying all over the place, trying to, mm -hmm. you know, change this diagnosis. And, you know, I think that was the first time actually in my life and his life where we experienced the power of the mind now that I look back because it was a long stretch of time of eight months where he um, did not believe that this was going to kill him. He did, did not believe that this was a death sentence. He thought that he could beat this and did many, made many different changes in his lifestyle and the way he ate and the, really his attitude was really up. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, what didn't really work out for him was the fact that the way he was diagnosed was, uh, was an emergency. He was misdiagnosed. So by the time it became evident something was wrong, he had to have an emergency surgery to have his colon deviated. And so fast forward these eight months where he was really eating healthy and feeling like he was gonna beat this, he had to have the surgery to reverse this or we were not gonna be able to do it anymore. And once he that surgery, he had to stop a lot of this healthy lifestyle and the diet and all of that stuff. And something about that changed his mindset, changed something within that surgery, just 
there was no there was no turning back from there mm-hmm. and you know again the power of the mind within he was given eight to twelve months to live and he ended up passing away twelve months two days after his diagnosis wow. like literally almost the date yeah and that was uh, I know you shared this with me you know a few times but um it, it it being a you know a very significant big loss for you um and it you know it's up to you if you want to uh, answer this question but I'm, I'm i'm a bit curious also like john showed you a different side of you what did he, what did he show you i think for the first time he showed me um the good parts of me Uh He showed me the creative part of me. He showed me that I was lovable, that I deserved to be loved, that I was worthy. He he showed me what he saw in me. He showed me his point of view, which wasn't what I, the the lens through which I had looked, right, my entire life, or wasn't what was reflected back my entire life. You know, we could blame it on culture. you know, we can just really look at it as everyone brings what they have in life and yeah. they give what they can, right? I come from two families that come from a lot of trauma, uh-huh. a lot of toxicity, a lot of violence, verbal, emotional, physical abuse. And I experienced that too, right? I said I, I glazed over a lot of stuff just to give you the story, but there were reasons why I was so depressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why I tried to take my life a few times, right? It was a desperate call for for help, right? And so it was the first time that I received love in a very healthy and filling and loving way. Uh And he just had this power within him. And it wasn't just towards me, it was towards anyone that surrounded him. I really, truly, deeply believe that he was a special, special person. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was 33 when he died. Yeah. So he wasn't old, right? Like he was. Wisdom doesn't come with age. Right. <laughs> he was taken very, very, very early, and left a lot of people really wounded and wondering why, why, how can something like this happen to someone like him? Right. Mm-hmm because he really enriched the lives of everyone around him. Like if there was a common theme during this funeral was that, how he, John had the ability to make me feel good about myself. Mm. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting a little. (laughs) That was the the recurring theme, repeated over and over again from many people. So yeah, that what he represented for me was was that the, the good in me, the good in life, the creative side of me. He made me feel like I was the best thing that's ever happened to him. Mm-hmm. I think he was probably the only person in my life that has made me feel that way. Well, my kids do, actually. Sorry. <laughs> John, you're going to have to share this one with my kids. Yeah. No, no. I mean, we often say that, it, you know, in our, in our, world of coaching you know others will see more of you than you'll ever see of yourself oh yeah and so, and john john saw 
you know, like you said, he was the mirror, but it was the good side of the mirror. Like, you know, whether, whether it's a bad side or a good side, it doesn't matter, but it's a, they see when you, when you notice like your soulmate, they see something in you that we often deny in ourselves. Right. So, you know, so now your mirror, your rock, your, however you want to describe John, um, the physical presence of him is left. What's left of Fatino? Right. I mean, you know, like I would say, as I mentioned before, right? I, so, so you know, I do think he was a, he, he came into my life to completely give me, to give me the contrast. He was the contrast in my life, right? Yeah. Completely shifted my life because now I had experienced that. Now it's not so simple, right? Because the, the dark side and the wounding and the trauma is still there, right? But what shifted in me was what I went on to experience, not only the day, the moment that he died, I had this really, really powerful experience that I just realized maybe like two years ago that it was an out-of-body experience. But at the time I thought that I just went into shock and I was hallucinating. But I had this really strong experience the moment that he died, I felt sucked out of my body. And I was seeing us and everyone in the room from above. So that debunked my belief that there's nothing after this, right? Like it just really like, it was that like, can you see? Can you see, right? And, and again, after, you know, in a few months right after his death, I had multiple experiences like that. Hmm. Like my sleep, um, I, you know, he came to me multiple times. Many weird, we were talking about synchronicities and coincidences, like, and I wrote him down. I started writing him down because it, it was like, you know, so that was, that was where the seed was planted. You, you were asking me before we got on, you know, like, how did I become spiritual? Like, where do I stand on spirituality? But that, that was the thing that I couldn't deny. I was like, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> It's not over. He's still yeah. here. I can sense it. Yeah. He's communicating with me. So that was the first shift from like being an atheist into, oh no, there's something after this life. And very much kept me afloat for the few really, really, probably the darkest years of my life. Mm. They came, you know, like a couple of years, lasted for a couple of years. I also had some PTSD from the experience of watching him die that I ended up having to have addressed through EMDR. You know, so I was seeing a therapist, treatment groups. Uh, there's an organization called Cancer Care that nearly saved my life. Mm. Um, I saw that therapist for 10 years after that. So I had a lot of support and that's, you know, like if you want to get back into where I am today and where that started for me, started there hmm. from the personal experience of, I can't do this on my own. The support system I have right now is the only thing that's keeping me alive. And right. they very much felt that way. The bereavement groups, the, you know, the one-on-one sessions that I did. And then, you know, the, EMDR like really helped because I was at a place where I was completely paralyzed by memory of him dying, like freeze and not able to even like move or could be in a public place. And I was 
see someone with blue eyes and just start crying and not be able to even move. So strangers would get me off the train and calm me down. So I really, I had no choice but to address it. <laughs> yeah, and th those were very much the years that I started experiencing, you know, like, do you want to call it self-development therapy, you know, really looking at myself and looking at the patterns that were not serving me and learning how to reframe things, learning how, how to look at things from a different perspective, which, you know, when you lose someone that you love so deeply, it feels really impossible at first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And grief is, is complicated. Grief is so challenging for all of us, you know, and it's not just how we process grief. It's like what happens around you yeah. when the person's no longer there, like, things can crumble, people can drop out of your life. We all grieve differently and yeah. we may not meet anymore along that path. You know, it may last forever, it may, it may, people may come and go. And so there's a lot of little losses within a big loss that happen. So I went through a lot of that for a couple of years. And, and then um, two years later, I ended up meeting Fred who is, now my ex-husband, he's the father of my children. Um, and he and I shared a, shared a really difficult childhood story. Like he comes from, you know, it's not for me to tell his story, but he comes from a very difficult to his dad died. And I can say this, right? Um, when he was eight, also we we're both eight when our dads died and also in a tragic manner. So when he came into my life, I really felt like, oh, finally someone that can feel my pain can really relate to me, right? Somebody that can understand me. Somebody that can understand my loss and my grief because grief in my life began with my dad, I had decided and I didn't know how to process it. You know, I, I know that I saw a therapist for a while, but I don't really remember much about it. I also know that I went through a period where I didn't talk for, I wouldn't talk much. Oh. So, you know, the, the grief with John was also layered by all the, unpro now again, knowing what I know about trauma, by all the unprocessed grief with my dad and the trauma around his death. So when Fred came into my life, he was, oh my God, it was, like, it was, I felt like, finally seen and you know like supported and he did have the ability to just sit there and listen to me and really understand where I was at. I was not healed I was not in a place to be with anyone today I know that at the time I didn't right. yeah. <laughs> but he really held space for me and I, I will always appreciate him for that I will always be grateful for that for all that we shared and we had amazing, an amazing few years together. We, you know, eventually, I think it did help me, that relationship to kind of move past the grief and be able to be with someone else fully. And then, yeah, and then we had Luke mm -hmm. in 2012, um, about like three, four years into our relationship. And then our daughter, Blake, born a couple of years later. And then where do you go from here? <laughs> How did I get to be divorced? Um, listen, when I when I think back again, I could play the blame game, and I'm not going to because that's just not the me today, right? 
you listen to me telling my story even, which I did in December, it's gonna sound like a very different story because I am constantly working on myself and evolving yeah. and changing my fences. Absolutely, right? yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so I'm not gonna say any of that, but I'm gonna say that, you know, sometimes when we evolve and grow and process things and leave those things that were holding us back or were traumatic behind, we come out of it on the other side changed and different. And sometimes you just grow apart in that sense. And if there is something that is going to challenge that is parenthood, right? Mm -hmm. That challenges anyone, even if you don't have the trauma that I had in the history that I had, becoming a parent is a huge step and it's a, it's a challenging one. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a shift, immediate shift of identity and everything in your life changes and you're trying to figure your way around it. And so if you have unresolved stuff in you and you're also trying to be in a relationship, chances are things are gonna clash at some point. And so I'm gonna leave it to that. It kind of very much, we drifted apart, but I, you know, I'm gonna take ownership of a lot of it, a lot of, what was happening for me, which I think at the time I was pointing fingers at him. And I'm not saying, and with this, I want to make clear that I'm not saying that the other side doesn't have responsibility. We all do, right? But a lot of what was happening was my, I recognized how miserable I was inside, how unhappy I was. Maybe I put the blame all on him at some point, but a lot of it was about myself. I did not like who I was. I did not like how I felt. I did not like what I saw around myself in my surroundings. I did not have fun in my life. I did not feel connected to my kids. I did not feel like I enjoyed my life, that I, I didn't feel fulfilled. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was living for. And I mean, I'm sorry, but those are like some really tough questions to answer when you have two human beings that you have just created. Right? Well, well, especially like when, I, when I'm reflecting back on your story, it's almost like you did a time jump back to the time when you left Italy. Like you're, it's almost like you were in the same time. Are you frame. seeing it? Yeah, yeah. Are you seeing how the patterns have repeated? Right? Yeah. How the patterns have repeated? Right. Including the fact that now I'm a single mom. Mm. <laughs> My mom became a single mom, right? Mm. Different reason why she was a single mom, but right? Yeah. yeah. When you start looking back and connecting the dots, you see how these things are repeating, right? And so, yeah, so that was the beginning of really, it was when I turned 40 and I'm giving away my age. Do not put all this together, please. <laughs> I don't care. Anyway, I'm 46 now. So that was six years ago. I, I don't know why that four in front of my age was like such a big deal for me. <laughs> How can I be like this? How can I feel like this? Yeah. You know, I think part of it is also what, most women go through. It's not just now you're in a different role, different identity, different responsibilities, different way of your freedom goes away. Different body. My body was different. Like 
my hormones were all over the place, right? So there were a lot of things that were happening within me that I was like, I didn't recognize myself. And well, then what, I, about, what about your expectations too? Like, like it almost sounds like 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 when you reflect back on like with all these losses and changes and all this, like your expectations, like like you woke up forty. I woke up 40 and I was like, I do not like this check. <laughs> like, what, what the what, hell happened? What, what happened to my life? I remember thinking that and I'm yeah. like holding my daughter, you know, like I have two kids and who is this person? Mm -hmm. Who are my friends? Why am I friends with so-and-so? Who is my husband? You know, like I really started this process of questioning everything. Mm. And there was something within me that realized that, you know what? I have to pull my sleeve up mm -hmm. and start doing something about it. And the place where I started was the place where I felt the most unrecognizable, which was my body. You know, like I was like, oh, I always felt pretty confident in my looks. Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate like that, but like I was not feeling that way, right? Yeah. And I, and also I had a lot of aches and pains. I was like, I feel like I'm like 80, you know, like, so it was a lot of that. I've always been fairly healthy. So I was like, we're going to have to do something about that. And I, and really my journey of transformation, like radical transformation started from my physical health. Hmm. So like I started working out, I started, you know, like really making that part of my lifestyle. As that got better, my confidence grew. Mm -hmm. my, I proved to myself that I could do something for myself so, as drastic as that because I had tried to work out my entire life. The gym was not something that I liked to do, right? I never worked out. I was blessed with having, you know, a decent body and, you know, being an attractive girl, right? And now I had two kids and it's like, well, th this is just not going back to <laughs> the way it was on its own. What am I going to do about this? Right. But, you know, that shift in my physical health and my physical fitness gave me this level of confidence that really helped me see things differently. Right. Mm -hmm. I was really like walking around feeling differently. And from there, you know, like I started getting into self-development. I, you know, we started doing couples therapy, all sorts of different things. But that really, and, and how I got myself to work out, everyone, listen to me, was a hypnosis meditation that I listened to every night. I love exercise. Oh. I love my physical fitness. It was one of those that someone had suggested to me. I was like, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I've had more gym memberships that I can count on, and I never go, right? So I did this hypnosis, and lo and behold, I've been exercising full-time ever since. It's the number one go-to thing that I have that I know the physical like, the person that I am, I need that outlet. I need to release energy that way. So well, to, the, to the point where I, I think it's, it's one of those, um, it's a deal breaker for you in the sense of like, I, I we've had talks and you, and you said, I've got to end. Cause I've got to go to the, I've got to oh, go. Yeah. 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 
It's like, we can't do this anymore. We got to go. I got to go. Yeah, because along the way, I also discovered as my divorce started that a lot of the anger and resentment that I had at the beginning, because we're not going to really, I'm not going to really get into the details of that. It became very contentious, I can say. And it still is not a great relationship. And I can say that too, right? So there's been a lot along the way that I've had to process and deal with and a lot of it had to do with anger and and like resentment Mm -hmm. and i was like oh you know what this boxing class was awesome for this Mm -hmm. you know like it's much healthier than just sitting there ruminating or like picking up the phone and like you know like just talking about him and being angry and rehearsing right not only like People get tired of listening to that. You get, I got tired of listening to myself, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. going to the gym was, it, oh my God, I was like going like seven days a week. It really helped move a lot of that anger out of my system. And once that was out, guess what? All of these beautiful things started dropping in my life. I started meditating. I, I started like a hypnosis, you know, course where I... That was life changing. That was another life changing. That was the first like true, like big, thick part of everything that was in here that was cluttering my thoughts and all of the rehearsal and the stuck, stuck energies and experiences got moved. I always say those, I did like four months of it, four months of hypnotherapy. It felt like somebody took a vacuum cleaner to my brain. It now had this brand spanking new brain that I had some control over and that was doing things that I liked. So that was the difference, right? Mm -hmm. Chaos and like not really knowing how to process my thoughts and like they were running my life. My my mind was running my life, right? Like Joe Spenza says, the body was the mind. Like I... Because I know, uh, like your 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 business was was uh, had defiant in it, didn't it, or something like that. It was. It's just interesting because I I what I hearing from you in this shift is you were doing things in the past out of defiance, and now you seem to be doing it more out of a desire. Right. Right. I, I mean, I, I'm not gonna say I'm not a rebel. No, no, no. Defiant no. sometimes. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm not a rebel. And, and that's the thing, right? That, that was a really actually recent reframe. It's that I'm not a rebel. I know exactly who I am and what I want and where I'm going. And I'm not afraid of saying that. Mm-hmm. You want to label it rebel, that's on you. But I know my truth and I'm going to speak it, which right. is very different, right? It comes from a different energy and different, it's positioned very differently than like, I'm just going to rebel no matter what. No, 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 no. This is just who I am and I've intentionally chosen to be this way, or there's intention behind why I think what I think, right? So we can call it rebel, but it has a connotation to it, or we can just say being firm, like really firm and standing in your own right? That's the way I see myself today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and then I would say, like, I know we like it's been over an hour. It was impossible to keep it in an hour, but you know, within that process, it started through you know the exercise and then hypnotherapy. I started this 
process of self-development, like I started digging in, inner child work, which also came to me thinking, oh, I'm gonna do this course, mm. learn all of the latest timeout techniques for these kids that don't listen oh. to me. And it turned out to be all inner child work. It was all about me, 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 me. Right? Yeah. And this was during the pandemic. I skipped some steps. So anyway, this process happens. My divorce starts summer of 2019. Um, my ex decides to leave. You know, we're not going to get into that. Anyway, it was difficult for my kids to process the way it had happened. And I had a business, I had an e-commerce, a fashion defiant fashion line. Mm. Um, and all of these things that I had to all of a sudden juggle, raising two kids on my own in New York City, the e-commerce, the divorce, now I have a lawyer and now they want all this stuff from me. It's like, you think you're paying someone, they're gonna do it for you. No, they want stuff from you constantly. So my divorce process started, and that was the start of a, almost a four-year process. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that, guess what? The pandemic hit. <laughs> now I'm in a divorce, raising two kids on my own, pretty new, because I had a pretty, I had help before that. We had a nanny, and my mm -hmm. ex was helping me, and I'm just doing it all on my own. So I went through a lot of shock. There was a lot of you know, there were reasons for my anger and a lot of like, what the hell am I going to do? Like, what, what do I do with these kids and their feelings and how they're feeling about this? I can't even figure out my own stuff. Right. So it was <laughs> the first time in my life that I couldn't just go down deep and dark like I had done with my dad's death, with John's death. I really went rock bottom. I will go rock bottom because I knew there's only one way <laughs> and that's up, right? I will get depressed and I will get doom and gloom and go on like that for months. I couldn't do that. I had two kids that mm -hmm. were relying on me. And I always say, they saved my life. If it wasn't with, because of them, I would have repeated my own pattern, right? Yeah. But because this time there was this variable, I did not, I could not afford going down like that. And so I really started looking at things and facing things from this more aware place and did a ton of work on myself. I mean, it became an, an obsession trying to understand how did, I, how did I end up here? And really the very first thing was, oh, you mean I have to look at what my part was in this? <laughs> Take the in this relationship not working because I want to tell you about how he did this and he did that and how it's all his fault. Mm -hmm. But then now I had to really look at myself and my part in it. And when I started seeing all of that, started seeing all the parts of me that were toxic, that were not kind to him, that had a part in this ending, that were the parts of me that were not showing up with my children in the best way, or that they were going to repeat generational mm -hmm. patterns, right? They were toxic. And that was a tough, and all of this while COVID is happening and I'm homeschooling my kids full time. So now I'm like entering this teacher identity that I did not like. And, and I went through all of the normal COVID things that we all went through. Right? Yes, yeah, so yeah. Now the world is falling apart. And I live in New York City, right? 
lockdown. Like, I mean, everyone who lives probably has seen the footage of what was that was like in New York, like ambulances and people dying all over the place. And yeah, I was juggling a lot. I was juggling a lot. You know, like I always, now that I'm saying this, I'm like, oh yeah, that was pretty tough too. You know, like I had been through some really tough stuff it was pretty rough. It came at me in so many different directions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And along the path, because I want to get to this point, right? Along the <laughs> initial stage of me really looking at myself, I would always talk to a girlfriend of mine and we would share notes, talk about Joe Dispenza books and all this stuff. And she was like, you could be a coach. In fact, I think you should be a coach. What are you talking about? I'm a fashion designer. What is a coach? Mm-hmm. And I just rejected it, right? But she's an NLP coach, and she was like, you know what? I'm doing this NLP course. It's very short, no commitment. You're sitting at home anyway. No one's going anywhere. Why don't you come and do it with me? Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of my coaching career. Okay. The beginning of my coaching career. That's where it all started. And yeah. And it was also the very first time in my life when I started coaching and, you know, meeting other coaches that I realized, oh, my God, all this stuff that has happened to me, people are seeing this as with appreciation is helping them. It's helping them through their stuff. Uh It has given me wisdom. It has taught me so much i am resilient i am strong because people would people's jaws would drop and i always felt like shrinking around my story yes i I wanted to hide it it was like a label for me i'm the girl that her dad died i'm the girl that was a widow at 30. i'm the girl that's getting divorced right i'm the girl that was depressed i always saw it as a, a label a negative label yeah. When I started coaching, I realized how much of a superpower it is. Mm-hmm. I realized how much through these stories, these tragedies, we can really come out on the other side empowered. I mean, we could stay in it and do what I did most of my life. Blame and see all of these terrible things that were there. It was very believable. All these terrible things that were happening in my life is like, I'm cursed. Why me? Why so much stops all these people die in my life right mm-hmm. i could have stayed there or i could do what i do today use that to help others feel seen heard see how they can turn that into power how i can turn that into their superpower frankly how they can grow strength and resilience from it and change the narrative and that's another recent thing for me. It's like, yeah, I don't need to keep doing that. <laughs> no. I don't need to keep repeating these patterns and keep learning this way because it's almost like a medal of honor to have been through all this stuff. I realized that that was part of my identity too. I actually kind of want to not be that girl anymore. Like I want to take all that wisdom, but I want to have a, the other part of the story, right? I want to have the story that, that I want to have the... Uh, the happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's fine. It's, it, um, it's, 
it's interesting that you now get to be the mirror for others. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Right? Yeah. Isn't yeah. it interesting? Yeah. And, and I think even today, when I forget about that, when I question it, when I, you know, and, I, and I'm very open about the things that I'm going through, it's it's a really big moment of transition for me ever since my divorce ended. Mm-hmm. I've had moments of doubting it. And every time I do that, there's that very clear redirection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and one time came from you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I posted about that too, you know, like, that little tap on the shoulder. Can you please look this way for a minute? Yeah. Because all your evidence is right here. Yeah. You're just not looking. And so I do feel very on purpose. I do feel that my life has trained me to be who I am today. When I became a coach, it was so effortless that I could, I was like, I don't know, but this whole coaching thing is really easy. It was very easy for me. Well, yeah, no wonder. Been through a lot. I've done also a lot of therapy, a lot of work on myself. You have a therapist for 10 years, you learn a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. From modeling, right? But it, yeah, I feel really called to do this because I've been through so much pain in my life that I know what it's like. I know what it's like to go through feeling stuck, feeling pain feeling like there's no reason to live, feeling like like there's not a different story available to us, that we're never going to get anywhere, that you know we're not meant for greatness. Because I live them on my own skin. Mm-hmm. And I, I, if you had told me back then that I would be talking about it the way I am today, I wouldn't know who that person is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would probably, I would probably not listen. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. No, you're definitely you're you know a testimony for for possibility, you know. Possibility, yeah. Yeah, you know, and um, and that's why you know that's why we have our stories, in in that sense. That's why we have our stories. I mean, when you can really do this exercise, of looking at your life from, and I do this with a lot of my clients, just really mm-hmm. taking that bird's eye view, overview of your life. You can see, you can start connecting the dots and see where everything in your life has led you to where you are today. Exactly. Absolutely. Everything in your life. And it's almost like I was literally meant to do this. And whatever else it is that I'm going to do next, right now in this moment of my life, this is what I'm meant to do. And I know I'm really good at it because guess what? I've been there. I can raise my hand multiple times and say, yeah, I've been there. I know how hard it is. And I know that you can come out of it. (laughs) And I know that there's a different story that we can create from the exact place that we're in right now. Yeah. Then create a completely different story. I also know that, which I didn't know when I started this process. And it's and and like with all our stories that we hear, like when you, every one of those moments seemed like it can't get any worse, right? It's like oh shit, it just got worse, but here you are, like you're still here, right? And and you said you know like I recognize my resilience, I recognize my power, you know, and um, 
Yeah, I want to th thank you for being very vulnerable today and sharing mm -hmm. sharing some of those pieces that I could put back in, into the. Yeah, so many pieces, and like there's you know obviously so much more. I didn't even get to talk about my beautiful children and how how they teach me so much about myself and the unconditional love that I get from them and what mm -hmm. an honor it's been to fully embody this role and connect with them on their level, which is the level that we all should be at, right? Uh, yeah. So much so, like, you know, yeah. and I, thanks Don for- uh, um, Thank you, Don. I, I, there's one image that's gonna stick with me from this, this one, and it's, it's little Fatih in the back of the room with her hand up. Little Fatih in the back of the room with her hand up, and you know what's what's what came through, like what I kept hearing in my in my head all along my life, and all this stuff kept happening. I didn't die. Mm -hmm. I didn't die, and you I know what? That's something that I use as a coach. Mm -hmm. Are you going to die from this situation? My wisdom, my seven, eight-year-old wisdom, got me to look at the world like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to die from this. So, yeah, seems a little grim, but like sometimes we can really behave like we're about to die, right? And it's okay. like, truth be told, we're not. No, and but it's that childlike curiosity, the 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 need to to get answers, you know, and and it's to, to me, it's like a symbol of I'm here. Hello. I mean, you know, I remember reading a few years ago Vishen's book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, where he's like talking about this and like questioning things. I was like, oh, that was me. That's where I realized, oh yeah, that was conditioning. I was conditioned to think that being so curious wasn't okay. No. But I was always that. I You're was right. always that kid. Yeah. I always had those coaching qualities. <laughs> Be curious. Well, welcome back, Fatih. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to see yourself. All right. Yeah, well, well, welcome back to myself, right? Because that's where we're all going, right? Back to that's our... where we're all, that, that's what it's about, yeah. is about taking the layers off and, yeah. So, um, life begins. And um, I'm sorry, we... Um, I'd like to continue, but I know that there are other things that uh, we can't because I have to go pick up my kids. Exactly, like I said, you know, life, life, life is carrying on regardless of what we think. But uh, no, thank you, my friend. Um, it's been a real pleasure um, um, to have gotten to know you well over the last couple of years, and I know from a from my personal viewpoint um, the remarkable evolution that you've had over even just in the yeah. short period of time that I've known you. And um, you are remarkable. And uh, reach out. Come on, New York. <laughs> reach out to you? I mean, no problem. <laughs> no, reach out to you and, uh, and get to know Fatih a lot more, a lot better. Yes, reach great out coach. to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know where to find us both. And yeah. thank you for holding this space for me, Rex, so beautifully. Like you, you betcha. Do. every Wednesday. Love you. Love, Love you all. See you soon. I'm not going to do the host thing. I'm going to let you do it. <laughs>
Well, okay. Well, if you, you know, like, like, and share, um, if you like this podcast and anything else that we have, we've, we've got over, this is number 76 episodes. Like we're well on our way. Nero was born. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, that's cool. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, reach out to us and, uh, subscribe, make comments, uh, email us about ideas or any questions that you have. Um, we're more than, more than thrilled to, to answer anything that, uh, uh, comes our way. So anyways, take care until next time. See you all next Wednesday. you so much for joining us we appreciate every listener that is committed to the journey of transformation and if you found value in today's episode join us for the next conversation as we take on a new topic every week subscribe to our podcast so that you won't miss any tips and insights your experience of the show means a lot to us so please help us amplify our impact by posting an honest review this action matters to us more than you know you can find us on social media at An Honest Look Podcast and on our YouTube channel at An Honest Look. Bye for now. Ciao, ciao, and until next time.